Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Ian Gilligan. He is Honorary Associate Professor in the Department of Archaeology of the University of Sydney. He specializes in the origin of clothing and the role of textiles in the transition to agriculture. He also has an interest in traditional clothing in Aboriginal Australia, particularly in, in Tasmania during the last Ice Age. In addition, he explores the wider psychological and philosophical aspects of wearing clothes. He is also the author of the recent book Climate, Clothing and Agriculture in Prehistory, Linking Evidence, Causes and Effects. So, Dr. Gilligan, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. My pleasure, Makara. Okay, so I would first like to ask you before we really get into clothing and how clothing evolved in humans uh, and how they developed it, let's say, uh, do we already have any definitive theory as to how we evolved our naked skin? Well, uh, the short answer is, is no, uh, we don't. What we have uh, a number of, of theories. Uh, there's really no consensus in paleontology. Uh, in, in the book, I discuss really four of the leading theories. Uh, the, the common notion that we became naked as an adaptation to heat stress uh, in Africa. Um, and that, that, of course, has been around for a long while. The problem with that theory is that we've discovered that being naked in a hot uh, climate is, actually puts more uh, stress on, on, on the body with the exposed skin surface. Having a layer of fur, while it's certainly very useful in a cold environment, in hot environments it also is useful because it acts as portable shade. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas losing the fur cover uh, actually puts an animal under more uh, uh, heat stress. And that's why most animals in the tropics haven't lost their fur. So that, that theory is, uh, has, has uh, come unstuck, as it were. Uh, the second theory would be uh, Charles Darwin's idea that it, uh, from his point of view, he couldn't see any great advantage in losing our fur cover. He thought it was possibly related to, not to natural selection, but to what he calls sexual selection. And that is that we developed a, a naked skin because we found find it more sexually attractive. And uh, one of the key pieces of evidence that he, he cited in favour of that theory was that women are generally less hairy than men. Uh, the problem with that, though, is that in other uh, animal uh, uh, species, when we look at sexual selection, it generally works the other way around. That is that... Uh, the, it's the female to do the sexual selecting and the male to develop the uh, attractive features such as the peacock's tail is a classic example and the one that really bothered Darwin a lot. So in terms of sexual selection, uh, if that was the case, men should be less hairy than women. There's various other ways of trying to get around that or explain why that may, might, that situation may have reversed in humans. That's the second theory and it certainly has its proponents. Uh, the third theory is a theory that always appealed to me, uh, and that goes back quite a long way now. It's, it's called neoteny, and, and that theory points out that if you compare 
uh, modern humans with other primates. In a number of ways, our many of our physical features reflect a slowing down of development. We, in a sense, are more juvenile than other primates. And some of those features are things like a, a larger brain or a larger head size relative to body size. Um, uh, and the slowing down in uh, development uh, results in a much longer lifespan, which we certainly have. Uh, and one of the other juvenile features um, is less body hair. And one of the attractions of that theory is, is that with neoteny, uh, each feature doesn't have to be adaptive. If even just one feature is adaptive, then the whole it's a, it's a genetic package. It's a slowing down of gene expression. So the whole package can be inherited, even if one or two features are not adaptive or even a bit maladaptive. So, for instance, we could say that having a larger brain uh, had advantages. Uh, so that's why neoteny was favoured among our ancestors. And along with that, we developed a longer lifespan, a slowing down of our um, development and loss of body hair. Um, I, I find that quite a good uh, theory, but uh, it, it turned out that neoteny isn't so good at explaining all of our uh, uh, different uh, features between us and other primates. Uh, but it, it's certainly there as one of the, the theories, and I think to some extent neoteny uh, does apply in uh, humans, and that may account for the reduction in body hair. Uh, my favourite theory really is a new theory, well, relatively new, uh, developed by uh, uh, Peter Wheeler from uh, the Liverpool John Moore University in England. He published a series of papers in the 1980s where he looked at what happens if you compare a, a bipedal animal, an up, uh, animal walking on two legs, into four legs, and he did uh, actually use real mannequins and uh, uh, measured the heat load on the body with cover and without cover. And what he proposed is that for a, a, a bipedal animal mm -hmm. in the tropics, having uh, uh, hair is useful on the head because it acts as portable shade. But if there's a lot of body fur on uh, the torso and on the limbs, because those surfaces are not exposed to the uh, heat stress of the overhead, uh, sun, uh, it's, there's actually a thermal advantage in losing body hair on the rest of the skin surface, uh, but retaining hair cover on the head. Um, he also pointed out that with the loss of fur cover on the body, that then allows uh, cooling by convection, but if that, the animal also develops an increased capacity for sweating, uh, which doesn't work so well with a fur cover, but without the fur cover, a naked uh, animal that also developed a high capacity for sweating can benefit both from cooling by convection and also cooling by uh, evaporative uh, cooling. Um, so that theory, I, I think, is, is interesting because it suggests that there's a particular uh, adaptive niche for a bipedal uh, hominin mm -hmm. uh, to retain... Uh, fur cover or hair cover on the, on the head, but to lose fur cover on the rest of the body and develop a greater capacity for sweating. That's the fourth theory. Um, it, it has its problems, but it's, it's I, I think, probably the best of a bad bunch, as it were. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and with the evidence that we have nowadays, is it really possible already for us to say something about what might have been the point in our evolutionary history where we as humans started wearing clothes? Yes, uh, I think uh, there's really two kinds of clothing. I distinguish between simple clothing, which is just a uh, loosely draped garment, um, and complex clothing, which is fitted or tailored, if you want to use that word. Um, with simple clothing, uh, when we look at uh, the evidence, it's likely that simple clothing was developed multiple times by a number of hominid species, probably going back to the next part of a million years. Uh, this kind of clothing would have been developed uh, when needed, but also discarded when no longer required. And we can talk later about the various archaeological uh, uh, correlates of clothing, but uh, generally it, it does look as though simple clothing was uh, invented, if you want to use that word, a number of times, probably many times, um, throughout hominin uh, prehistory. Going back, I, I suspect around a million years or perhaps even longer, um, uh, if you look, say, at, at Peking Man, Homo erectus, in northern China, for example, around 800,000 years ago, we do find uh, evidence not only for the use of fire, but also scraper tools that could have been used to prepare hides for clothing. Um, so I think that kind of clothing, simple clothing, uh, was developed multiple times by number of hominin species. If you look at complex clothing, that is fitted clothing on the other hand, the evidence suggests that that was only developed during the last ice age from 120,000 years ago. And when we look at the various uh, archaeological signatures for complex clothing, we find them really coming together for the first time during a very cold phase around 75,000 years ago in the coldest part of Africa, in southern Africa. So, uh, to cut a long story short, it's simple. I think there's two origins of clothing. There's the origin of simple clothing, or origin of plural, uh, which was invented and then discarded multiple times throughout hominin prehistory, and complex clothing, which I think was only developed during the last ice age, um, and essentially developed only by homo sapiens, although there's some evidence that Neanderthals towards the end may have started to develop complex clothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, from archaeology, what are the sorts of tools or artifacts that you look for uh, that provide evidence for a particular hominid species or a particular group of people uh, using them to produce clothes? There's a number of strategies we can use. There's, we can talk about the archaeological evidence in terms of artifacts in a moment, but the other way of looking at the uh, evidence of clothing, the presence of clothing in prehistory, because we don't have any actual remains of clothing uh, from the Ice Age, the oldest surviving uh, remains of clothing are about nine or nine and a half thousand years ago at the beginning of the present interglacial. But what we can do is we can also use the disciplines of paleoclimatology and what we know about thermal physiology in humans to uh, look at uh, when 
hominins were present in certain environments where we know that the conditions were such that clothing would have been required, then if hominins are present, for example, in the northern uh, uh, middle latitude, say in the vicinity of, of Moscow, for instance, during an ice age, if we have evidence that hominins were there at the time, we can say they couldn't have been there unless they had the protection of, of portable insulation. So we can use those lines of evidence to infer the presence of clothing or the likelihood of, of clothing. Um, but the other uh, lines of evidence are the actual artefacts that people would have needed to manufacture clothing. The basic tool is, is a hide scraper, a stone scraping tool. And I mentioned before that we have evidence for multiple origins of simple clothing over the last million years, and we do see the development of uh, hide scraper uh, technology um, and toolkits really with a focus on stone scraper tools appearing and then going away and then reappearing during colder climate phases over the last million years. So these uh, the hide scraper tools are a basic tool that's required to prepare animal skins for clothing. When it comes to complex clothing, we also need scraper tools. But in addition, because fitted clothing, uh, the hides uh, have to be cut into fairly regular shapes like rectangles, so they can be sewn together to make the uh, uh, cylinders for to cover the arms and the legs, for instance. It's also useful to have a dedicated hide cutting tool and uh, these tools are called blades. Blades are used for many purposes, same with uh, scraper tools. Uh, but what we do see is that during the last ice age, uh, a focus in the cooler parts of Africa to develop these hide cutting uh, blade tools. The other tool that's re required for complex clothing and could also be used for simple clothing is a hide piercing tool, such as a or a needle mm -hmm. and in fact we find the uh, the earliest um, bone awls that are used to pierce holes in animal skins during the last ice age and in fact in southern Africa around that very cold period between 75 and 60,000 years ago we find those three kinds of tool technologies coming together in southern Africa we find the hide scrapers which have been there for off and on for a million years or so, but we find these hide cutting tools, the blade tools appearing, and also bone all that uh, we know we use to pierce hide. So they're the additional technologies, the blades and the the uh, oils that are needed to manufacture complex clothing, and that comes together during, only during the last ice um, age. Okay, so earlier you referred to the fact that during our evolutionary history we had several points where we sort of invented clothing and then later we abandoned it. So uh, what are the environmental pressures that really favor the development of clothing? And are there climates where people really do well without uh, any clothes? Yeah, to answer the second question first, in, uh, particularly in hot, dry climates, um, mm -hmm. it's better for humans to have no clothing. Um, uh, 
while uh, people do wear clothing uh, protection from uh, the heat nowadays, of course, uh, in terms of our physiology, we're very well adapted to coping with uh, hot, dry climates. Um, and that's also where our capacity for sweating, I think, uh, uh, evolved. Uh, so the other aspect is uh, skin color. Having a darker skin uh, is adaptive to the, uh, sun exposure in those tropical environments. So in those environments, uh, we do quite well without clothing. Um, in cold environments, um, and particularly where wind chill becomes a factor, then we do need to have portable insulation to survive, even uh, with the use of fire for warmth and even the use of shelter, whether it be caves or construction of artificial shelters. In cold environments, people have to go outside at some time, uh, mm -hmm. carrying fire around and the fire stick is, is really ineffective, particularly in uh, windy conditions. Uh, hominins need portable thermal insulation in cold environments, uh, and that's where uh, we, we need to have developed clothing. Mm -hmm. Okay, and are modern hunter-gatherer groups uh, good sources of evidence as to what might happen during evolution when it comes to the development of clothing? The, the short answer to that question is, um, well, yes and no, but mainly no. We've got to be very careful uh, in uh, uh, supposing that recent hunter-gatherers are somehow representative of past uh, uh, hominin uh, adaptations. All societies change over time um, and it's, it's really no more valid to say that a, a recent hunter-gatherer uh, community is uh, analogous to uh, what would have happened uh, during the last ice age than to say that uh, what humans are doing now on Manhattan Island is a good analogy for what was happening during the ice age. Um, it's really uh, a, a mistake to see present day or recent hunter-gatherers as somehow in an evolutionary sense uh, not having evolved uh, and, and so being representative of past adaptations. Um, we have the additional problem that the Ice Age environments uh, were quite different to any environments that we have in the world today. There are no environments now that correspond to the environments uh, in the middle latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere during the last ice age. We might imagine that uh, in Europe, conditions were similar to a modern day tundra environment in Siberia, for instance. But in fact, because of the different latitude, uh, during the ice age in middle latitude, uh, there's a great deal more sunlight uh, than what there is in present-day uh, northern tundra environments, which means things like the, the more plant growth, for instance. Um, there's a lot more um, food opportunities in those ice age environments than what there are in present-day uh, northern tundra environments. So there's, there's no uh, environments uh, that are analogous to what was happening during the last ice age. 
So the, sh the short answer is no, we really can't look at modern day uh, hunter-gatherers as uh, something you know, analogous or representative of what was happening in the past. Things were different then. Now having having said that, it doesn't mean that we can't look at uh, hunter-gatherers uh, and um, uh, get some ideas or, or uh, uh, test some hypotheses. But we need to be very cautious about doing that for the reasons that I've outlined. Um, there's also problems, Ricardo, with the, the whole concept of hunter-gatherers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the issues that I have and other people have is that when you think about it, to define uh, people's lifestyle in, in terms of hunting uh, and gathering is defining their lifestyle purely on the basis of their food economy. And it, it's it's like saying that our lifestyle is essentially agricultural. You and I are, are, are farmers, and saying that's that some, uh, defines us, and we we wouldn't be too happy about that. Uh, so this whole concept of uh, the hunter gatherer. Uh, reflect uh, really a, a food uh, preoccupation in uh, anthropology that's come under a lot of criticism lately, I think, for, for good reason. Um, so I think we need to be careful too about using the term hunter-gatherers. So we're stuck with it, um, but we need to be aware that it's uh, quite uh, unrealistic to define um, the community's lifestyle purely on the basis of the food economy. Uh, and in terms of, of clothing, for instance, and I think the development of clothing has been quite important um, and the uh, uh, lack of routine clothing in some hunter-gatherer communities is, is very uh, important. Um, but if we define them as hunter-gatherers, then we're, we're saying in the sense that they're presence of clothing or the absence of clothing is, is not so relevant. Um, it's the food economy that's most important. So I have problems with that. And uh, 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 so for all those reasons, I think we need to be very careful. Um, having said that, though, um, there's still some lessons that we, we can learn from the ethnographic evidence about clothing. And one of the key pieces of evidence is that in some hunter-gatherer societies, people did not wear clothing routinely. Um, and this is you know, creates a problem in terms of theorising about the origin of clothing, uh, aside from the thermal motive, which I emphasise. Other people have suggested that the origin of clothing may relate, for instance, to uh, an innate sense of, of modesty, a need to cover the body out of a sense of shame. Um, and that theory comes unstuck when we look at those ethnographic examples of hunter-gatherers who are able to manage without any clothing. So that's an example of where, without saying that recent hunter-gatherers are representative of the past, we can still use the evidence from hunter-gatherer societies to, to test, um, if you like, uh, hypotheses about the origin of clothing. We could also look at the, the other third theory to the origins of clothing is that people develop clothing uh, for decoration because we like to dress ourselves. I thought that's probably the one 
main reason why we wear clothes nowadays. Um, but once again, when we look at some hunter-gatherer communities, we find that they did not need clothing to get dressed. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, they were able to get dressed very elaborately by decorating the naked body with body painting and so on. Uh, so again, we can say that uh, in terms of theorizing about why humans first invented clothing, it wasn't necessarily because we like to decorate ourselves or get dressed, and it wasn't necessarily because we had some uh, innate sense of shame about being naked. I suspect both were two motives, uh, modesty and dress, developed once humans had already developed particularly complex clothing where the body was routinely covered by clothing. I think again, it inherited those other uh, functions. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's interesting because before we had clothing, we decorated our skin, right? So we didn't really need clothing to exhibit some sort of decoration. We would, for example, paint our bodies in certain ways and things like that, correct? That's right. One of the examples I like is the, uh, the flagons in southern South America. Uh, Charles Darwin on his voyage on the Beagle uh, and across the Flagons in the 1930s. And he was uh, absolutely shocked by the fact that even in that extremely cold, windy environment, uh, that latitude 50 degrees south, that the, the uh, inhabitants there were quite happy to get around without clothing, which means they did have clothing, uh, but they only used it when they really needed it. And they were probably better adapted biologically to cold, having been there for so long. Um, but uh, what we see with the, the Fuegans is that they very much like to get dressed up, particularly for ceremonies. Um, but in order to get dressed, to paint their, their bodies, they would actually, if they were wearing clothes, they would have to take off their clothes in order to get dressed. Um, I think that's a good example of how clothing and dressing are, are really two different things. I'd like to show you one of my favourite books. Yeah. Beautiful book, I don't know if you can see it, they were published in 2015 by Kenton Hudson. It's on the, the Flagons. Uh, can you see that? Uh, could, could you move it a little bit to your left, please? Just to, yes, yes, like that. Yeah. Thank you. So you say, uh, well, Dressed gentlemen, but without clothing. Uh, but these same people also did have clothes, and here we can see this is a, a lady wearing what is uh, a skin of a guanaco, the ancestor of a right. So they did wear these clothes at time to keep warm, but in order to get dressed for ceremonies, they would take their clothes off and paint mm. their body mm. like Right. Um, that illustrates the point that getting dressed is something that goes back to the very beginning. Our humans have always wanted to, to dress themselves. Uh, clothing actually is an impediment to getting dressed in a hunter-gatherer context. Um, and it's much more difficult to decorate clothing to have the, the same effect of, of body painting. Um, what happened, I think, with complex clothing during the last uh, ice age is that because humans, particularly in northern middle latitudes, were needing to wear 
complex clothing continuously on a day-to-day basis. The need to get dressed to decorate the body got transferred onto clothing. So that's when I think people began to use clothing as dress. Uh, and then, of course, after the last Ice Age, by that time, um, after tens of thousands of years of using clothing, not only as protection from cold, but also as dress, that people then wanted to keep on using clothes as dress. Um, so there's that change in, in functional clothing, which is not unique to clothing. It happens with many technologies um, that often new functions are acquired, which then can become more important uh, down the track. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've already referred to a simple and complex clothing and perhaps some of the differences between them. But we also have a textile clothing, particularly with the... Uh, well, I, I, I was going to say the advent of agriculture, but that's a bit complicated. But perhaps when we started having agriculture as the basis of our e- economy in certain human societies, let's say people also developed tools to then create textile clothing. So what are some of the most relevant differences among these three types of clothing? Uh, I think there's still two basic types of clothing, which is simple and complex. It's the structure of clothing. Okay. Complex clothing is fitted, and it can also have multiple layers. And that applies whether we're talking about animal skins or textiles. Textiles is a different material for clothing. It's okay. simple or complex. Mm-hmm. About textiles, uh, the textile technologies go back a long time. Well, there's plenty of evidence for textiles. Uh, technologies in the last ice age for things like basketry and ropes and so on. But in an ice age environment, uh, it's actually better to have animal skins for thermal insulation, um, particularly in terms of very cold conditions and protection from wind chill. Skins and, and furs are actually more effective. Textile clothing, in fact, has a disadvantage in that environment because it has a porous structure, which means that wind can penetrate more easily with uh, textile clothing. So I think that's why during the Ice Ages, uh, people preferred animal skins and furs to textiles as a material for clothing, be it simple or complex. What happens after the end of the last Ice Age is that the global environment not only got a lot warmer, it also got a lot wetter, uh, as all of the ice melted and went into the oceans, sea levels rose, of course, but with the higher temperatures, a lot of that uh, water evaporated more easily, so the, the atmosphere became a lot uh, more humid and the uh, precipitation levels were much higher. So the beginning of this uh, uh, post-glacial epoch, environments generalised became warmer and a lot wetter. And that creates a problem for people who are wearing clothes made of animal skins. Those sort of uh, materials become really uh, not uh, not really viable in warm, humid conditions. And that's where textiles come into their own. Because of the woven structure of uh, cloth, it actually allows people to cover themselves, but the porous structure allows the uh, clothing to breathe, as it were, and so the, the wind penetration 
uh, is actually useful for cooling and helping sweat to evaporate. So what we have at the end of last ice ages, transitioning in clothing technology and increasing use of textile uh, as a clothing material. Um, and, and that's primarily for thermal physiological reasons that woven cloth is much more viable in warm environments. Mm-hmm. Okay, and between uh, clothing that is based on animal skin and fur and clothing that is based on textiles, uh, could we really say that one of them is better or of higher quality than the other? Or does it depend on the functions that we want for clothing to have and the environmental conditions we live in? It depends entirely, um, primarily on the environmental conditions. Even nowadays, uh, in very cold environments, uh, we still like to wear uh, furs and feathers. Um, and that has the advantage of, of course, it reduces wind penetration. Um, whereas, as I said, textiles uh, are much more vulnerable to, to wind chill. Uh, so that's why during the, the ice ages, uh, animal skins and furs were uh, more adaptive. Once we come into the post-glacial epoch, uh, then in most environments, textiles are, are more comfortable and function better because they deal with moisture in particular and much more effectively. Um, so it, it, it is primarily an environmental uh, factor with the material of clothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about the relationship between clothing and agriculture because it's very interesting that in your book you go through some of the main hypotheses that have been put through to explain why people really adopted agriculture as the basis of their economy and you talk about uh, hypotheses that refer to uh, population pressure, others to food storage, and you say that they all have some flaws. And then you propose the hypothesis that uh, agriculture, uh, at least to some extent, was developed to feed domestical animals and we would get uh, and we would use them to create uh, clothing and also some domesticated plant species. We specifically domesticated them to produce textiles. So, could you tell us about that? Yes, it's a very complex issue, um, and uh, it's certainly my suggestion that the need uh, for uh, textile fibers, which arose. The beginning of the post-glacial epoch as a as a motive for hunter-gatherers to start agriculture. That's a new idea, and it's uh, uh, I wouldn't want anyone to get the impression that it's uh, uh, a consensus view. Uh, right. About all, all of the uh, consensus uh, theories about the origin of agriculture are that it was about getting food, um, and uh, I. Uh, depart from that uh, uh, paradigm, if you like, in suggesting that uh, we can better explain the transition to agriculture 
if we look at the need for textile fiber production as well. Um, in terms of conventional theories about the origins of agriculture related to food, um, that has, has uh, uh, really come unstuck in recent uh, decades. What we now realise is that for hunter-gatherers uh, to begin uh, uh, agriculture uh, creates a lot of problems. It involves a great deal more work. Uh, it involves uh, uh, a, a reduction in uh, uh, the range of species that are exploited uh, for food, uh, often results in a poorer diet and even um, uh, a poorer health quality. Um, if we look at what hunter-gatherers uh, think about agriculture, as it were, we find that their traditional lifestyle um, was actually quite easy. We can think of hunting and gathering as being a harsh existence, but in fact, the evidence is that in terms of getting food, hunting and gathering is, is a relatively easy lifestyle. It's also quite secure in that it's very flexible. There's a wide range of food resources that are available to hunter-gatherers and they have a much uh, better uh, knowledge of environmental resources than, than we do. Uh, so from their point of view, why abandon agriculture, uh, hunting and gathering and go to all the extra effort of uh, planting uh, crops or domesticating animals for uh, food returns that are delayed as well. Um, so there's, there's big problems with looking at the transition to agriculture from a hunter-gatherer perspective. Um, there's many other problems as well, and we can, we can talk about those. But in essence, uh, the idea that agriculture is a good idea um, and that it's a better way of producing food than hunting and gathering um, is, is not as good an assumption as it, as it used to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, isn't it also the case that we tend to have this erroneous view of agriculture uh, having, having been invented some 10 to 12,000 years ago and uh, as if before that uh, hunter-gatherer societies and other types of societies didn't really have any kind of agricultural practices at all? Because, I mean, the... Uh, it, there's evidence that they did, it's just that they didn't make it uh, the central uh, the central thing, let's say, in their economy, in their food economy, right? Yes, that's right, Ricardo. We used to have this sort of dichotomy between hunting and gathering and, and agriculture. You now look at it as more of a continuum in some ways. Uh, Hunter-gatherers engage in uh, management of, of resources um, and uh, probably engaged in uh, agricultural activities to some extent on many occasions uh, going back further into the past but what didn't happen was that hunter-gatherers did not get trapped into agriculture as it were mm -hmm. um, and for some reason or reasons at the beginning of this post-glacial epoch around 12,000 years ago, some societies 
began to intensify agricultural practices and, in a sense, get trapped into agriculture. Once agriculture gets started, um, it impacts on the viability of, of foraging. Um, and for a number of reasons, uh, societies can get trapped into uh, becoming dependent on agriculture despite its, its drawbacks and despite the fact that as a way of getting food, uh, it involves a great deal more work uh, and it's also in many ways less secure than hunting and gathering. You're putting all your eggs in one basket uh, and even uh, the idea of food storage is an advantage. Um, food storage has its problems in terms of rot and vermin and so on. It's not a, quite a, as secure as it sounds. Once again, when we compare it to uh, successful hunter-gatherers, um, it's hard to see why people would make this transition to becoming dependent on, on agriculture for their food supply. Mm -hmm. And uh, in agricultural societies, uh, would there be any way for people to compensate for, for example, food losses by hunting a little bit more or, or not? One of the uh, interesting uh, uh, things we've discovered in recent decades is that even in societies that uh, did become trapped, as it were, into agriculture. For example, northern China with rice cultivation and you know, in Southwest Asia in the Middle East with the cereal crops um, and in the Americas uh, with maize and corn. What we do find is that even thousands of years after these societies began agriculture in a big way, they were still using hunting and gathering by uh, often the bulk of their dietary requirements for often three or four or five thousand years after they made the transition to agriculture. And that, mm -hmm. that really doesn't make a great deal of sense. If people are going to all the bother of agriculture uh, to produce food, why are they still hunting and gathering as well? Um, uh, that's one of the, the problems that, that's uh, emerged in recent decades. Um, that's one of the reasons why I think we need to look beyond food um, and look at other things that may have been happening and other reasons why hunter-gatherers may have made the initial transition to agriculture. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've already talked a little bit about some of the problems that people get when they uh, really adopt agriculture as the... Uh, and put it at the center of their food economy, like, for example, health problems and the fact that with time they get trapped into agriculture, and also perhaps the fact that they have to, uh, to work longer hours to really produce food. But uh, are there any other problems that you would like to refer? I, I don't know if you want to refer, for example, to uh, changes in social structure or things like that. Yes, there's, there's really uh, two other uh, new things that start to happen in some human societies, probably towards the end of the last ice age, and certainly by uh, the beginning of the, the post-glacial effort. One of those 
new thing is sedentism. And I discuss that in the book. And sedentism plays its own role in the origins of agriculture in some respects. Um, settling down in, in one location can result in the, uh, the passive domestication of some plants and animals. And that's probably how uh, some of our favourite pets, like dogs and cats, became domesticated. It's probably wild animals becoming attracted to human settlements and in a sense domesticating themselves. Uh, other species are uh, rats, for example, are less welcome, but they, uh, uh, in a sense, domesticated themselves uh, in uh, human settlements. So we've got this other trend of sedentism that, for reasons that are really not well understood at all, uh, starts to occur towards the end of the last uh, ice age. Um, and that favours agriculture in some contexts, uh, particularly, for instance, in, in China, where probably the, the trend towards sedentism was the main driver in the early stages of um, one of the other things that happens um, is that societies become more complex. The, uh, the egalitarian social structures of uh, hunter-gatherer societies begin to break down for reasons, once again, that are, are not well understood and we get hierarchical um, forms of social organisation emerging. And in those uh, societies, um, one can see that there's perhaps a greater social need for a food surplus. Um, and this is a theory that's been developed by uh, Professor Brian Hayden at Simon Fraser University in Canada. His theory of the origins of agriculture is what he calls the, the feasting hypothesis. He says it's not about producing food for everyday human consumption. It's it's because societies are becoming more complex and agriculture can be used to produce a food surplus and that surplus is actually used not for everyday food but to accumulate wealth um, for uh, feasting uh, um, and so on. And it's not just food, he also talks about other uh, so-called luxury products such as textiles um, that uh, uh, can be produced through agriculture, um, but only become uh, valuable in the, the context of more complex societies. But the problem there is uh, that as a cause of the transition to agriculture, we don't have much evidence that societies were becoming more complex prior to the origins of agriculture. It tends to happen a little bit down the track. Uh, but it's certainly one of the factors that we need to take into account. Um, the other one, you already mentioned, is population growth. And we do know that human populations in these agricultural uh, communities began to uh, increase quite uh, dramatically and even exponentially. Uh, and for reasons that are not well understood. That used to be one of the theories for the origins of agriculture is what's the because uh, the human population was uh, growing out of control, then there was a need to produce a food surplus. But once again, as happened with uh, social complexity, the evidence we have for that takeoff in the human population really uh, it doesn't start to happen until after there's a transition to agriculture. So it's hard to see how that 
can be a, a good reason for hunter-gatherers to start with agriculture in the first place. But it, it becomes very much a factor probably around in, in, in major agricultural centres by around 5,000 years ago where the population is beginning to increase dramatically and that's where food production becomes more important. So I, I, it is a factor, but it, it, once again, it's hard to see that as a, uh, a good reason for the initial transition to agriculture going back towards the beginning of the post-glacial era around 12,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to domesticated animals, what does the evidence tell, uh, tell us about that? Because, I mean, on the one hand, when people talk about uh, animals being domesticated for agricultural practices, they usually refer to as they being used primarily as sources of food, not only sources of meat, but also of other animal prod products like milk and eggs and things like that. But in your book, you also point to them as being used as renewable sources of clothing. So does uh, one of the um, those factors is one of those factors more important than the other when trying to understand why people domesticated animals in agricultural societies? Yes, that's a very good question, Ricardo. I think it's it's useful to go back to basics and and look at um, if meat is is the main resource in question. From a hunter-gatherer point of view, the animal has to be killed. Uh, that's the only way you meet, for example. Um, so domesticating animals like cattle uh, from meat uh, doesn't make a great deal of sense, given that all you have to do is go out and, and hunt and kill the wild animal. Um, in the case of, of the Middle East, it's, it's also unusual that cattle were not the first animals to be domesticated. The first animals to be domesticated in the, the Near East were sheep and goats, which probably not as, as uh, obvious a choice as, as first animal domesticated compared to cattle, for instance. The point about domesticating animals is that there's a shift from uh, killing the animal to investing in keeping the animal alive. And, that, and that's an obvious difference. So why go to the bother of taming and feeding animals to keep mm -hmm. them alive and, and breeding them if it's only meat that you want to get, which you can get as a hunter just by going out and killing the animal. Um, the point about living animals is that presumably for some reason or reasons, the animals became more valuable to humans as living resources rather than as a, a carcass to get meat. And why would that be the case? Um, and in the case of sheep and goat, uh, you know, for example, then obviously there's other resources that uh, could be involved. And in the case of textile fibres, of course, it's wool. An interesting point about wool is that it's a renewable resource that can be extracted from the animals for as long as they are kept alive, unlike meat, which can only be obtained by killing the animals. So if we look at wool as a uh, wool production, um, in the case of sheep and goats, and it provides us with a reason for people to invest in keeping the animals alive because they then get a renewable 
uh, resourcing a home of war of a, a pitting the animal's life. Um, and the same applies, for example, with the main domesticated animals in the American, South America, the llamas and alpacas, where it's pretty obvious that they were being uh, domesticated for wool rather than uh, um. Now, coming back to domesticating animals, um, this raises the question that, or the point that you raised earlier, which is how do we feed these animals and to what extent um, were some of the early crops grown not to feed humans but to feed animals. In the case of uh, the Middle East, for example, the major crops are the classic cereal crops, wheat, barley and rye, which are mm -hmm. rough. Um, and we know now that these uh, uh, plant species were domesticated at around the same time that sheep and goats were first domesticated, around 12,000 years ago. And the point I make is that domesticating and cultivating uh, grasses is not really a very obvious thing for humans to do. We, we're not uh, naturally grass eaters. Uh, and if you look at hunter gatherers, we are using them as analogies, but nonetheless, uh, 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 the cereal uh, grasses, uh, seed production, wasn't a major food resource for hunter-gatherers. It was regarded as a fairly unpalatable uh, third or fourth option compared to other uh, food options. And yet we know that people not only domesticated sheep and goats around 12,000 years ago, but they began to cultivate and domesticate these cereal crops. And the point I make, of course, is that these cereal grasses, wheat, barley and rye, are the main food crops uh, to feed these animals. Um, we also have legumes, uh, peas and lentils that are domesticated early on in the Middle East as well. And that forms part of the natural diet for these uh, domesticated animals. So the reason for domesticating cereal crops in the first place isn't necessarily to reduce uh, seeds to make uh, grinders and bread, um, which is around, around our way of, of getting food. Uh, but the, if we're going to domesticate these animals, we have to tame them and we have to be able to feed them. Uh, and I think that factor needs to be taken into account as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the last topic I would like to cover here today has to do with the psychological and social aspects of clothing, because I guess that that's a, another really important uh, aspect of uh, how people use clothes, uh, particularly in agricultural societies, but not only in those types of societies. So, uh, what are the main, uh, the most important aspects that we have to consider here. I mean, once people adopt clothing and use it in a regular basis, do they then start start using it to uh, signal something as well, like signaling status or signaling access to resources or their position in the social hierarchy and and allegiance to a particular group and things like that? Yes, very very much so. And I think this is the important transition that occurs with clothing. And it probably began during the last ice age. Um, that uh, 
when people were wearing complex clothing on a daily basis because they had to for survival, they also had these other uh, social needs for uh, uh, dress um, uh, to display um, status and so on. Um, uh, and that function, I think, got transferred onto the clothing once clothing was being used uh, routinely. But that means that from that point onwards, there's more reasons to keep on wearing clothes. And at the end of the last ice age, it would have been sensible for people in many parts of the world to do what people had hominids uh, had done with clothing uh, during previous glacial cycles. When the conditions get warm again, they can simply dispense with clothing. From the complex clothing, that didn't happen. And I think that's fairly interesting. The clothing by that stage had become a social uh, necessity Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why, in a sense, that's the main reason why we keep on wearing clothes in the world today. It's, it's not because we need to keep warm all the time, quite the opposite, in fact. Um, and then we have this other factor of modesty, which mm -hmm. uh, um, I suspect is an effect of uh, wearing clothes on a regular basis when uh, it, it gets to the point where, um, for a number of reasons, being without clothes becomes socially unacceptable. We feel incomplete or inadequate without clothing, regardless of any formal requirements. So it's those psychological and social aspects of clothing which have become much more important since the end of the last ice age in maintaining uh, the wearing of, of clothing and, and really making uh, clothes indispensable in the modern world. The other psychological aspects that I talk about in the, in the book are, are in a sense, a, a more profound uh, aspect of, of wearing clothes, which is that when the human body is routinely enclosed by clothing, that that can affect how we, we look at ourselves, not just our bodies, but also how we, we see ourselves and even how we, we see the world around us. That we have this in a sense, an enclosed reality that we live in. Um, and I wonder whether that may not be relevant to some of these other trends uh, that we see emerging uh, in human societies, particularly, for instance, with sedentism, which is, in a sense, a, a withdrawal from engagement with the natural environment and the construction of uh, walls and fences. It's an enclosing of the human world, which some extent is a repercussion of being enclosed by clothing, in my view. Um, so some of these other aspects of, of clothing have become extremely important, um, not only in maintaining the wearing of clothes, but in altering uh, the way the humans relate to the natural environment and, in a sense, separating us from uh, a natural world that is now uh, demarcated from us and uh, we are enclosed and, and what is outside becomes a wilderness, a, a foreign world of nature. Uh, and that's part of what uh, we refer to when we talk about domestication, not just in the biological sense of domesticating plants and animals, um, where the plants and animals actually change physically as a result of uh, 
uh, human intervention, involvement with humans. But domestication has this broader uh, uh, meaning of uh, living in a world that is domesticated, that is based on a, a home, um, and it also implies that there's a demarcation between what is domesticated on the, the on the inside and what is mm -hmm. undomesticated or untamed or the wilderness, the, the outside environment. And I think that demarcation between humans and the natural world uh, really only, Professor Ian Hodder at Stanford University has done a lot of work on this, is mm -hmm. uh, the origins of domestic or human domestication, as it were, and if you look at archaeological signs of that, and not just in terms of enclosures and building houses and the first towns around 10,000 years ago, um, but also signs that there's a demarcation uh, between what is human and what is untamed and what is outside the human world. It's part of that separation of humans from the rest of nature, uh, that domestication. Process. So I, I see that as being very relevant, and in some respects, it may be related to the enclosing of the human body. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, but but e even if there are some aspects of clothing that really might have changed some aspects of our cognition or our worldview more generally, isn't it also the case that there are other aspects, particularly ones related to decoration and social signaling that simply were sort of transferred from uh, the surface of the skin to clothes when they started being used on a regular basis? Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean there. And, uh, uh, well, well, perhaps perhaps what I mean is that before humans started w using clothes on a daily basis and before uh, humans developed agricultural societies, that uh, in human societies people already used, for example, body painting to, uh, to sign all some aspects to their society or, or even to distinguish them in some way or another and to decorate themselves in some way. So perhaps what I was, what I was trying to say is that some, some of those more ancient psychological aspects of body decoration were simply transferred to clothes when they when we started using them on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I think that's very much the case. That we assume that we need clothes in order to fulfill those uh, social functions. But in uh, traditional hunter-gatherer societies where clothing is not worn routinely, then those functions can be very adequately served by uh, adorning the, the unclad body. And actually, when you look at it, uh, it's actually much easier to uh, decorate the body elaborately, say with body painting. You have to really invest in some very expensive clothes 
to achieve anything like the same effects that are achieved very easily with body painting. Um, you know, and we take it for granted, of course, particularly with modern uh, textile clothing, that uh, we can walk into a shop and we can choose clothes with different colours and different patterns and so on. But that's a very recent um, innovation. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, social display and decoration, body painting is uh, uh, much easier and much more effective and results in a, a much uh, a more elaborate appearance, an alteration of appearance. Um, so, yes, we've got this other uh, uh, factor, though, which we've, we've mentioned, which is the development of uh, social complexity, of more hierarchical uh, social structures, and ultimately the, the state uh, as uh, uh, foundation of uh, what we call civilised society, state organisation, um, which has only developed over the last 5,000 years in some parts of the world. Um, in these more complex societies, um, then there's uh, a great need for uh, a more elaborate alteration of appearance to fulfil those more uh, complex social functions. Um, and we can sort of use clothing and clothing is indispensable for those purposes. But all of that is, is fairly late in the picture, and in the last uh, 5,000 years or so. Um, in terms of basic human uh, social display uh, we don't know mm -hmm. okay so Dr. Gilligan I will be leaving links to your book in the description box of this interview in terms of online resources what are some of the ones that you'd like for people to know about if they want to know a little bit more about your work well I, I think that um, there's a lot of ground to cover, and I've covered a lot of ground in the book, and we've actually covered a lot of territory today, Ricardo, so uh, thank you very much. I, I, I think it's best if people have a look at the book, um, and um, that covers both the, the, the Paleolithic origins of clothing during the, the, the Ice Ages, um, and the development of agriculture, and the possible role of textiles, um, in favouring an initial transition from hunting and gathering to agriculture. Um, because so much of this work is new, there's actually very little um, out there. Um, I've published a few works myself, uh, but it's essentially I think if uh, people can have a look at the book, uh, ideally buy it of course, um, or I'm sure most libraries will have a copy of it. Um, uh, and there's, there's websites I have uh, on academia and research, case, for example, where I've got other papers so that people can download if they like. Um, but a lot of this is, is, is really new material. Um, uh, so there's, there's not a great deal out there. Um, I think people should have a look at, at the book one way or another, and uh, that at least will make them familiar with uh, what I'm saying, and they can make up their own minds. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I also recommend the book. It's really a great read and very interesting. So, Dr. Gilligan, I would like to thank you again for taking the time to be on the show. And, uh, I mean, it was really a pleasure. So, Thank you, Ricardo. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for keeping uh, uh, the interview on track. Um, and I think we've covered a lot of... There's other issues that we haven't mentioned that are covered in the book. 
particularly, for example, with possible oil of clothing in the extinction of Neanderthals um, and uh, with population uh, growth. Um, I talk about some of the, the, uh, the theories and mechanisms as to why the human population began to take off in the early agricultural context. We haven't had time to go into that today, but there's a number of other areas that uh, um, are covered in the book. But uh, thank you very much, Ricardo. Hi there, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started my channel last year and I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there or alternatively you can also do it on PayPal or Subscribestar. I will leave all the links in the description box. Otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, and my first producer, Isar Weber. Thank you for